Uh, my name is Matt, if I haven't met you before, and we're going to start by reading the Bible. We're in the book of Acts. Uh, we're reading from Acts chapter 16, and we're going to start at verse 6 and go through to first, verse 15. So that's Acts 16, uh, verses 6 to 15. Let me read. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to find a river where we expected to find a place of, a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Tyatira, named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. We're in week two this morning of a four-week series looking at uh, the topic of mission from the book of Acts. Uh, why do Christians do mission? Why do we want others to become Christians? Those sort of questions. Uh, and if you were here last week, you might remember one thing we spoke about uh, was how mission or evangelism, we might call it, involves a pain barrier. Uh, and you might remember, if you were watching, you, I talked about uh, the Tour de France, the cycling we said when you're riding in the Tour de France and you're going up a steep hill, your legs are seizing up, your body is telling you to stop because you're in pain. It's the ones who have the motivation to keep going and push through the pain barrier who end up winning. And if we're going to be the type of Christians who tell others that we want them to become Christians, there's a good chance that we might have to take some hits and experience some pain as well. So it's good for us to ask What's our motivation? What's going to cause us to push through that pain barrier and keep telling people about Jesus, even when it hurts? Now, I was thinking about this stuff during the week. I was thinking about people like, like the people who live on my street who don't know Jesus. Uh, and a number of my neighbours know that I'm a Christian. They know that I'm a church pastor. And if you've been watching our uh, online church since we were back in kind of normal online church a few months ago. Uh, you might remember that I did a fair bit of filming on my front lawn, which is actually quite a good conversation starter with the neighbours. Uh, but here's the thing, I, I wish I could tell you this morning that I've had all these wonderful evangelistic conversations with those who live on my street. The truth is, it's never gone much further than them knowing that I'm a Christian. And so my question is, why? Why haven't I invited my neighbours along to church, say, What's stopping me from asking my neighbours if they want to read the Bible together? What's stopping me from pushing through that pain barrier? And I think for me, if I drill deep down, I think the thing is, I sometimes just don't really feel like I'm going to 
get anywhere. I just don't really feel like I'm going to get anywhere. I think I could get over the awkwardness. I think I could push through the pain barrier, except it's, it's pretty hard to push through a pain barrier if you don't expect you'll achieve anything by doing so. If you know what I mean. I wonder if you think about it, if perhaps when it comes to telling about Jesus, you sometimes feel the same way. Like you're just not convinced you're going to get anywhere. So that's the question I'd like us to think about today. Can we actually have confidence that if we participate in God's mission, we actually will see good things happen? Are we confident in God's plan to save people? Uh, let me put up on the screen where we're going to go this morning. I've got three uh, quick points to take us through our passage. Number one, significant hurdles. Number two, significant instruction. And number three, significant results. Uh, and then from our passage, I want to give us five quick truths uh, which I think will help us feel more confident that as we tell others about Jesus, as we, as we participate in God's mission, we will see results. We will see results. Uh, so first, let's jump into our passage with our first point, significant hurdles. Uh, because as we join the Apostle Paul this morning, we actually find that Paul himself is in a situation where he feels like he's not really getting anywhere with mission. Can you believe that? The Apostle Paul, the great missionary of the early church, not really getting anywhere with mission. Uh, so let's have a look at what's going on. It's a short passage this morning, so I'll put it on the screen as well as I go through it. Uh, starting at verse 6, it says, Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Uh, so Paul and his companions, they're out trying to tell people about Jesus. They try to preach in Asia, or a province in modern-day Turkey. No luck. They try to go into Bithynia and preach the gospel there. They're kept from doing that too. Now this is, this is actually the second missionary journey that Paul's gone on, and so far it's been a lot more disappointing than the first one. Paul and his companions are wandering all over ancient Turkey, not really getting anywhere with evangelism. Although, of course, looking at the passage, you're probably thinking, well, it's not exactly what happened, is it? Because what does the passage say? Uh, the Holy Spirit stopped them from preaching. In Asia, the Spirit wouldn't let them go into Bithynia. And, and reading this, the obvious question is, what's actually going on here? As in, what exactly happened? What, what does it mean that the Spirit stopped them? Did, were they walking along in a bright figure? You know, the Spirit somehow showed up and kept blocking their way. Did they, did they maybe just have a feeling like they shouldn't go to those places? Did they hear a voice? Did someone have a dream? Uh, the answer is we don't really know, right? Luke, Luke the author of Acts, uh, just doesn't tell us. Although my guess... Given that when Paul has a vision a little later on, uh, Luke decides to spell the whole thing out for us, my guess is that what's going on earlier here in the passage is that Paul and his companions aren't able to tell people about Jesus for much more ordinary reasons. Maybe Paul's unwell, maybe the local government has put a ban on preaching, you know, maybe there's a virus and everyone's uh, been told they have to social distance. But here's the thing, whatever's going on, Luke is, Luke is recognising the deeper truth that behind whatever's going on is the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit leads Paul and his companions, verse 8, past Mysia and down to Troas. And now I'm going to put a map up on the screen for us so we can see the places we're talking about. Um, good to do, I think. We've got uh, modern-day Turkey on the, on the right. That's modern-day Turkey. Greece on the left. Um, now Paul was forbidden from preaching in Asia. That's kind of that red area. He tried to go north to Bithynia. 
Um, you can see he went along that red line. He couldn't go up there either. Wasn't able to go in. And you can always see the spirit guiding Paul, like bumpers at a bowling alley. No, not this way. Come back. No, not this way. Come back. And eventually he guides them along that line down to the sea, down to the city of Troas. You can see Troas there on the coast, uh, just underneath that little purple kind of peninsula. That's my, um, that's that's Gallipoli, by the way. Um, and I imagine Paul and his group, they, they arrive at Troas, they'd be hot and sweaty from weeks on the road, they'd go straight down to the beach for a swim, I reckon. Uh, and afterwards, you know, they'd be sitting on the beach, tucking into their fish and chips probably. Uh, how would they be feeling? How would they be feeling? Discouraged? Things are not going to plan. We've been trying to tell people about Jesus, but it's just not getting anywhere. Going back and forth. And as they're sitting there munching down their fish and chips, probably a couple of spring rolls too, I reckon, they'd be looking across the sea, very aware that just across the ocean, just over there, is Europe. The heartland of the Roman Empire. And I wonder if already they had a little bit of an inkling. Maybe God is calling us to go and do mission a little further from home. Well, that's confirmed a little later on that night when Paul receives this significant instruction. Our second point. Paul and his companions go off to bed in verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we, note the change to first person, it seems like Luke, the author of Acts, was in Troas and, and joined Paul at this point. We got ready at once to leave for Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. We've just spoken about how the Spirit can be behind more ordinary things, but here he gives Paul a dream, a vision, and if there was any doubt about where God wants Paul to be, now we know, don't we? God wants Paul to take the gospel across the sea, over to Macedonia and to Europe. The Spirit's leading Paul now in a clearly out of the ordinary sort of way, isn't he? Giving him this amazing vision. And it begs the question, I think, should we actually expect to see these things like visions uh, today? Should we expect to have those sort of things? And if you were with us last week again, uh, you might remember I spoke about uh, how to understand the book of Acts. And one thing I said is that I think Acts is uh, not a history textbook. It's not a history textbook. It's, it's relevant. It has a lot to teach us. Uh, but at the same time, it's not an instruction manual. It's not an instruction manual. The idea isn't to look at what's happening in the book of Acts and expect exactly the same thing to happen to us today. And I think Paul's vision here is a classic example. Just because uh, God gave Paul this clear vision does not necessarily mean that um, we should expect to have visions every time we're making a decision or every time we're about to cross the ocean, you know. Uh, and the other thing we spoke about last week is how things like miracles, uh, they tend to happen in particular times, at particular times, uh, and in particular situations and particular reasons. And I think we see that in 2022. You can go and read studies of places like the Middle East, um, you know, a real frontier for the gospel, and you can read statistics of how hundreds of Muslims are coming to faith in the Middle East. Uh, and in fact, the, fact, the stats have shown that something like 25% of people in the Middle East who come to know Jesus have experienced something like a vision of Jesus as part of their journey. It's a place where it's hard to get access to the Bible. It's a significant frontier for the gospel, and yet the Spirit still finds a way. Significant times, significant moments. 
I think we do see that in the world today, and it's true in the Bible too. Paul gets this vision when he's about to take the gospel into Europe for the very first time. It's a very significant moment. Let's see how things go. Our third point, significant result. Let's pick up our passage from verse 11. It says, From Troas we pulled out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. For those of us who were with us online as we went through the book of Philippians uh, last term, this is the place we were talking about, isn't it? Remember how uh, important the idea of being Roman citizens was to the Philippians? We talked about that a lot. Paul comes to this Roman colony, a leading city of the district. Verse 13, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to a river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Tyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and, her, and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. For Paul, it didn't seem like his evangelistic efforts were really achieving anything, but the Spirit directed him through the areas where he'd planned to go across the sea to somewhere new. And what, I, what I find kind of amazing about this is that after the Spirit showed up in such a dramatic way, you kind of expect Paul to get to Philippi and, and preach a big sermon and for thousands of people to become believers, kind of like the sort of thing that happened earlier in the book of Acts. But no, actually, this moment, which on one side is massive, you know, it's the gospel reaching a whole new continent, the first European Christian. On the other hand, it's a very normal, everyday story of someone hearing about Jesus, being persuaded, and deciding to follow him. Probably not unlike the story of many of the people who are watching today, many of the people at our church. Significant hurdles, significant instruction significant result. All right, let's let's try and grind ground what we've been talking about a little bit. I, I just want to pull out five quick truths that I think we can take from our passage today and that they can help us as we think about mission in 2020. And remember, we're asking today, can we have confidence that as we try and play our part in God's mission, that good things will happen? Can we have confidence? Even when we maybe sometimes feel like Paul did at the start of his passage today, like we're not getting anywhere. Number one, we're in this together. Uh, simple but worth saying, did you notice in our story today, uh, it's about Paul's journey, isn't it? But really, he goes along with a group. He's got Timothy with him. Luke joins them. And I think here's the quick thing for us. It, it's a lot harder to have confidence that you'll see results in your evangelism if you're going it alone. This is a human psyche thing. Of course, we're more encouraged when uh, we've got people alongside us. It's a biblical thing. We saw this in Philippians. Christianity is a team sport. We strive side by side. And I think so often we subscribe to the idea with our, that idea with our minds, but for some reason then when it comes to evangelism, we go off and we try and do it all on our own. And look, I guess there is some logic in that. I mean, you can't bring your friend from church to your office every day to help tell your colleagues about Jesus. But I tell you what, you, you can meet with your growth group and ask them to pray for you. And you could have some friends from work over for a barbecue and Get a couple of people from church around too and it could make a big difference if um, your work friends get to know a 
a few more Christians than just you. We want to be a church that's on mission, and that means we should do it together. Uh, truth number two, the Spirit has put us here. I think the thing that strikes me most from our passage today is how it's so clear that behind Paul's journey is the Spirit. Directing things, you know, not here, not here. Giving Paul a vision and taking him over to Europe. Well, we're here 2,000 years later, and the Holy Spirit is just as much directing God's mission today as he was back then. What does that mean? It means that we live where we live. We're in the communities that we're in. We are where we are because the Spirit has put us here. Now, how, how exactly does the Spirit lead us? Well, we've seen this morning the Spirit directing Paul with his amazing vision. Clearly, the Spirit directing us in ways like that is also still possible. Although we also saw how miraculous sort of stuff tends to be the exception and tends to happen at particular, particularly significant times. I've also seen how the Spirit can be behind what's going on in much more ordinary ways too. So here's what, here's what I'm trying to say, I guess. If you feel a nudge or you have a feeling or a vision or in some way feel that the Holy Spirit is telling you to talk to someone about Jesus, I'll be the last one to discourage that. But all I would say is don't reduce the Holy Spirit to that. The Spirit can just as much be at work when you go down to the supermarket and have a conversation with the person behind the checkout. The Spirit can just as much be at work when you chat to someone down at your footy club. The Spirit can just as much be at work when you arrange to meet a couple of other mums at the playground. Don't treat the Spirit like someone who just occasionally decides to get involved. No, he's always there. He's the director of God's mission. So pray, ask for his help, ask him to give you confidence and courage, and be on the lookout for opportunities. Be on the lookout for opportunities. That's truth number two. The Spirit has put us here. Truth number three, there, I think there is openness and hunger. I don't know about you, sometimes I feel like it's there's no one out there who's actually interested in Christianity. And, and it's just not the truth. Paul and his companions in our passage today, they get to this foreign city. And what do you know? Here's a woman who's already knows the Old Testament. She's open. She's ready to go. She's ready to hear about Jesus. You might ask, are there people like that in Australia in 2020? Well, it's not quite the same for us, but uh, there's a whole bunch of great stats and surveys that have been done on this. Uh, I was looking at a 2017 Australian survey this week, uh, and I wonder, I might just put some real numbers on it. Uh, this is what the stats say. Um, across our church, you know, you know, say there's maybe roughly 100 adult Christians, and say each of us knows maybe five people who aren't believers, we've got five friends who aren't believers, and you know, probably we're really in contact with slightly more than that. But that's 500 people, right? So take, take just 500 people out there in our community. And this is what the stats would say about those 500 people. The stats would say that 20 of those people are very keen to explore faith. 20 people, they're out there and they really want to find out about Jesus out of those 500. And 35 more others are quite interested quite keen to come along and 75 more are not actively looking but they're still really happy to consider Christianity. In total over 250 over half of those 500 people statistically speaking say that they are at least somewhat open to hearing about Christianity and faith. And I'll tell you what with the big things that have happened in the world this year you reckon those numbers have gone up? I reckon I reckon there's a good chance they might have. 
That's a 2017 survey. Uh, it's by a group called McCrindle Faith and Belief in Australia. Uh, you can go have a look at it online if you'd like to. There's hunger out there. Of course, we won't find those people unless we go looking for them. Uh, it's truth three. Truth number four, big things often start small. In our passage today, we saw the first European Christian, a very normal woman deciding to follow Jesus. And then this was just the beginning of Christianity in Europe. It was the beginning of something big. Europe would go on to be the center of Christianity for 1,800 years. And you know, the gospel went to Europe. It went to Britain. It went to the British Empire. When the British colonized Australia, they brought the gospel with them and churches like Trinity were started. So this story we've heard is part of our story too. Big things often start small. It's good to remember this when we feel like we're not getting anywhere in Christian mission. There are stories and stories of missionaries who go to another part of the world and they work for years and years and years and they maybe only see a person or two come to faith. But even then, when you go back years later, after one person tells another person, people pass the faith on to the next generation. Still, what starts with one or two people can lead to an amazing legacy. And by the way, if you're at home supporting those missionaries who are out there on the mission field, well, you're part of bringing about that legacy too, aren't you? Big things often start small. And that's true for another perspective too. Uh, remember I was talking about my neighbours earlier. And I said I just felt like that if I invited them to church, I probably wouldn't get anywhere. I probably need to remember this principle. Big things often start small. And I probably actually need to think less about inviting them to church and more about how I could invite them over for a meal. Uh, to have a Christmas morning tea or something in the next couple of months. Or get them over to watch the footy finals. Uh, maybe get a few other people from church over too. I have to be asking myself, what's the next step? What's the next step? It might just be a little step, uh, but big things often start small. Our fifth truth, the last one. If we're going to be confident as we play our part as a church on mission, one last thing that I reckon we need to remember is that we know the end of this story. We know the end of this story. The Bible, in many ways, is the story of God's mission to save people from himself. And how does that story end? Well, the book of Revelation tells us. Revelation 7 says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God is saving a people for himself. That people will gather before him one day and glorify the name of Jesus. And as we play our part in that mission, we can be confident because we know that this is God's mission, not ours. And so we can expect him to do amazing things. Let me pray for us. Dear Father, we thank you for your word and what it says to us, what it said to us this morning. We thank you for the Spirit, for the way in which he directed Paul in his mission 2,000 years ago, for the truth that he's still directing your mission today. We know that it can be hard to take risks and tell people about Jesus, particularly when we don't feel like we're going to see results. 
Help us to dwell on the truth that we've heard today. Help it to seep into our hearts. We pray that we would see people come to know your Son.